Now more than ever, the industry that fuels the world needs the right people to modernize and unify a global energy platform. The transformation is both digital and cultural. Join us as we explore strategies for success in the hyper-competitive war for talent here on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, hosted by the IBM North American Oil and Gas Team. Hello and welcome to another episode of Energy Workforce of Tomorrow. My name is Jason Duff, your host today, the IBM North America Oil and Gas Lead. With me today, I've got two hosts, Mr. Brian Woodward and Mr. Neil Syme. Hello, guys. What's up, Jason? What's up? Yeah, how's it going, Jason? What's happening? Hey, Brian. Let's look at this. We're doing this as a trio for our hosts. This has never happened before, I don't think, is it? I guess, you know, if we have a guest today, they're not going to get to talk. So uh, that's uh, how it goes. <laughs> Who cares? We're interested enough, Brian, surely. Yes. <laughs> uh, by the way, did it not rain this week for the first time in six weeks up in Wimberley? Is that right? It did. I almost got arrested for streaking, but, you know, hey. <laughs> Again. <laughs> that was unrelated to rain, though, Brian. Yeah. Let's be clear. Yeah, it was just sheer happiness and you know, I couldn't constrain myself, right? So Good man. Jace, who we got on today? Well, we have a very special guest, and clearly there's three of us, so he's going to have to battle for space, as you said, Neil. It's Robin McMillan. Hello, Robin. Hello, Jason, Brian, and Neil. How are you guys doing? Yeah, good. Neil, he's got a strange accent. How are we going to deal with this? I've had some good friends from down the old Yorkshire way, so uh, you know I'm beginning to pick it up, but let's see if our listeners can also understand and fire away, Robin. Maybe you can introduce yourself in more detail, and people will pick you up as it goes along there. Okay, well, actually, I'm sitting in Scotland, although I keep looking out the window because it's not cold and it's not raining, so... Hold on, you're lying. There's no way. Exactly. I know. That's That's right, yeah. Anyway, I've got three hosts here, so I just want... What is the collective noun for hosts? A host of hosts? A gaggle. A host of hosts, (laughs) maybe. Yeah, anyway. Stessies. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just listening to all the accents on the call, and I'm starting to wonder why I'm even here. Right. So, uh, but uh, so are we. Right? Yeah. But don't worry, we need to talk in American. We need to talk in American to really kind of make this international. It must be a diversity play to get a dumb Texan on with you guys, but that's all right. <laughs> so, hey, Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Robin, maybe just to kick off for our listeners. Can you spend a few minutes introducing yourself? Because I think you've got a really interesting background. And as we discussed, you know, sort of in our prep, it's all about the workforce of the future. So I'd love to hear about your background. And then, you know, let's just kind of dive in. Huh? Okay. Well, I did a geology university degree at Leeds in Yorkshire. And by the way, I can recommend geology. Anybody looking for something to do at university, it's a lot of fun. You're out and about in the hills all the time. If I recommended that to my... Geology rocks. That's very good, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a job for every cookie. Don't worry, okay, Robin. Keep going. I'll let you go. Okay. Yeah, because I recommended geology to my three kids and none of them took any notice. But then a couple of months ago, <laughs> my youngest daughter sent me an article in the Forbes magazine. It said, you know, the happiest students on campus, geology. So there you go. Too late now go. for them. Rock doctors. Yeah, rock hounds. So I got a job as a mud logger, joined Core Lab trained in Dallas, and they sent me down to South Texas to my first rig out of Hollingen. Then my first international assignment was in Libya, right in the middle of the desert in Gilo. So that was the staff house. It was an apartment over a bar in Malta. So that was a lot of fun. I just about survived that and um, then joined Bayroid, also as a mudlogger. So at the time, that was NL Bayroid, some of you may remember. Mm-hmm. That was my first trip to Houston 
right inside the Lupin Southwest Freeway at the time, so that was many years ago, and they sent me to Mexico. So I spent three years living in Mexico City, working offshore, Ciudad del Carmen. That was when they just started. There was like the gaggle of, that's a gaggle. That's a collective the collective now there you go. of Jacobs, plus one semi-sub and a drill ship out there in the early days, drilling offshore Mexico. And then also with Bayroid, I ended up working in a land job in Spain, offshore Norway, offshore West Africa, Congo, Gabon, and Syria, and eventually joined NL. All those holiday locations, Robin, all those nice holiday locations. All the hotspots, although I have to say that a land job in southern Spain was pretty much of a novelty for the oil field. (laughs) So then joined Hyclog in Aberdeen as a bit salesman. Uh, I was in Aberdeen for three years, went to Great Yarmouth as district manager for about a year, and then I was invited to go to Venezuela. Uh, spent five years as manager of High Clog in Venezuela, which was a lot of fun. I mean, it's a real shame what's happened in the last few years in Venezuela. It was a great place to, to run a business, great people, and uh, enjoyable. So I managed to speak Spanish as well because most of the business there was with Pedavesa, the national oil company. Yeah. And so most of the business there, contracts were in Spanish, the presentations were in Spanish, negotiation was in Spanish. So that all added to the challenge, but mm-hmm. again, it was a lot of fun in the end. And then Slumberger came along and purchased Camco. At the time, we were part of Camco. Slumberger came yep. along. So then I moved to Caracas to cover the rest of the north of South America. Then they merged us with DNM, and I became the DM manager in Western Canada. If I was based in Western Canada, but it was for the whole of Canada, which was a great contrast because Western Canada, you can imagine, is a bit like US land, but Eastern Canada is more like the North Sea. Yeah. A lot of deep wells in deep water. And then a few years later, I see Slumberger spun off Reed High Clog and I went with it and that was purchased by Grant Prideco. Grant Prideco, yeah. There was a great <laughs> technical connection there as well because whilst part of Reed High Clog, we developed this downhole sub, which was basically a data sub. And when we called it the black box because it was basically for post-disaster analysis. You know, somebody would say, hey, your drill bit was a piece of trash, didn't drill anywhere. And then you'd be able to show them this data and say, well, let me just demonstrate to you what you did to it which obviously curtailed its performance somewhat. Then with Grant Breaker, of course, we could make that real-time by sticking the data sub on the end of a string of uh, wide drill pipe and get the data directly to the surface. And then Grant Breaker was pretty by NOV, which completed the data loop because then it meant that the downhole sub via the, the, the wide drill pipe could be connected to uh, the Novos control system, which is now, of course, programmable. So it meant that you can close-loop the drilling automation you can have a control system which can see what's going on downhole. So then I was with NOV for a mm-hmm. couple of years, became president of Reed High Club within NOV. Then they merged it with downhole, and I came to Aberdeen. I say came to Aberdeen because I'm sitting in Aberdeen right now for a couple of years. Then went back working for David Reed in business development for NOV and did that for best part of 10 years until three years ago. And then I went and joined Data Gumbo, which was – Smart contracts based on blockchain, which is a complete change with a steep learning curve, but again, a lot of fun. And again, it was because our main investors (laughs) were Aramco and Equinor, it was basically the contracts we were dealing with were oil field contracts. So Brian, in summary, he's 250 years old and he's got (laughs) no industrial oil and gas experience whatsoever. I was going to say, Jason, I think we should stop the podcast because we only do this with guests who have industry experience, right? (laughs) (laughs) What do you know about drilling and all this stuff, Robin? Yeah, no, Robin, wow. I mean, Robin's done the round Robin, right, of the industry. Amazing. Boom, boom. The eternal truth is people. 
you know, when you first start to travel and you go and you're in a country where you don't speak the language, you start to think these people are different. The more you get to know people, the more you realize that they're not that different, that basic human values are the same wherever you go. You know, you meet people, they've got families, they've got kids, their aspirations are just the same as the rest of us. So I think that's the first thing you learn when you start to travel. I think the one thing you can learn about the oil field is the constant way we innovate. If you look at what we've done over the last few years, when you think that there was a time, well, look how quickly the US turned around to become an exporter of gas instead of an importer. That happened on an industrial timescale. That was almost overnight, mainly through technical innovation that was achieved. And that continues to be the case. And I think it will continue to be the case through what we're now calling the energy transition, or as some people refer to the energy expansion, because what we're really doing mm-hmm. is seeking new sources of energy to, if you like, add on to enhance the source of energy we already have, which are you know not going to go away anytime soon. But I think that what we're seeing now is the transfer of some of the oil field skills to some of those energy transition technologies. And I think that if you like, that ethos of innovation is going to continue. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Robin. That's a great point, right? I think often, and I think in the sort of market buzz we have today and the negativity around fossil fuels, I think in sort of the average person doesn't realize the complexity in the innovation it requires to, you know, drill a deep water well in the Gulf of Mexico and have distribution of wells spread out 20 miles from each other and thousands of miles deep and really complex horizontal drilling patterns and all the and I think people don't understand that this industry probably has some of the best minds in the world in terms of innovation and solving a problem and that's directly transferable I think to doing what I think we all agree we have to do in a rational and sensible way and that is evolve to new energy capture you know cleaner energy capture. I think that you're 100% right. And it is all about people, right? Yeah. And I think also you talk about as having some of the best minds in the world. I think we're about to get even more actually, because the more we automate the systems that we've already got, the less even processes on the rig become less manual, you know, the traditional manual roles. And as soon as you start to realize that these are then become automated, you now need a lot of different skill sets, which means, for example, that we can go hire a lot more women than we have done traditionally. And if we don't, we're leaving you know, half the brainpower of the planet out of the equation. And so clearly the sort of innovations that we see now, automation of the drilling process, automation of the actual pipe handling on the rigs, as I say, we're stepping back from most of the manual tasks. And that's clearly a good thing from a safety point of view as well. Because as, as you and I discussed earlier, most of the incidents you see, particularly in the IADC drilling statistics, are pipe handling issues. That's where people are still getting injured. And we now have the technology to mitigate many of those issues. And of course, we should. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, I think what maybe, again, a lot of uh, folks outside the industry or maybe even listeners in the industry that aren't on the forefront of uh, platforms is really, by and large, and up until very recently, you're still manually swinging pipe, right, and dropping it into the downhole. And Jason and I had the privilege of getting to see some of the newest technology around robotics for pipe handling. And I think the evolution of technology and automation is going to impact the industry maybe in the next five years than it has in the last 2025. It's a really exciting time. And a convergence, like you said, of the old know-how, you know, the get-it-done mentality with maybe, 
new skill sets that have really good understanding on how to leverage all this incredible data that's coming out of these drilling platforms and operational platforms in new ways to do it better, get more out of the investment, et cetera. So yeah, it's very cool. And you, I think, seeing the whole life cycle there, right? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. There's been a reluctance and some of it is a short-term versus long-term issue. So you know, when we started a few years ago talking about automated pipe handling, quite often the response was, yeah, but I can do it a lot quicker with my best roughneck crew. And that was mm-hmm. nearly always the case and probably still is the case. But you don't have your best roughneck crew on every tower and your best roughneck crew doesn't always perform as the best roughneck. In other words, you don't have the consistency. So if you're looking at this from a long-term point of view, you can automate pipe handling. And from that, you can then automate, you can then predict exactly, for example, how long a trip is going to take because it's now down to the, the speed of the machinery. And as we get better at this, if speed is the issue, then we can speed it up. But to answer your question, not everybody is jumping on that particular bandwagon right now. Some of the um, more advanced, want for a better word, drilling companies are certainly seeing the advantage and are moving in that direction. But I think there'll always be a market right now for the smaller outfits that will remain more manual. Why do you think that is, Robin? Is that just because it's just technology or digital and it's something new and we've done this all before, like you said before? I mean, it's a strange one, isn't it? Why aren't a very advanced industry understanding digital and moving towards it? I always struggle with that one, Robin. Yeah. Some of it is down to the money. Yeah, if you're going to automate yeah. a rig or buy a new one that's automated, it costs money. Right now, we still have a drilling market that's dominated by the day rate drilling model. And that really quite often doesn't encourage innovation. You know, you basically rent in a rig and therefore, unless an operator is prepared to pay significantly more, then the contractor is unlikely to go and invest and um, to go for improve, that improving that yeah. rig. So it needs to be collaborative. It needs to be the operator and the contractor getting together, say, yes, yeah, we do want you to automate that rig for this next contract. And we know that's going to cost a bit more, but it's the right thing to do. And in the long term, it'll be the more efficient thing to do. So let's do it. And there are some contracting models starting to about an operator in the Norwegian sector that's come up with a collaborative contracting model whereby they will set, for example, targets that both the service company on board and the rig Mm. company will agree to. And they will obviously need to look at the history and see, make sure this is all technically feasible. And then if they beat those KPIs, there are rewards all around for all players. And there'll be some downside as well if they don't. But at least that brings all those players together and it makes it a far more collaborative arrangement rather than if we're not careful, it's adversarial. It becomes zero somewhere. You know, I'm not going to win unless you you lose. (laughs) And obviously, we'd prefer not to have those sort of relationships. Brian, that's the type of conversations we've been having, right? Is trying to put a value to this digital so people can really, Robin, like I'm going to invest and here's exactly what you're going to see. But there is a little bit of you know, well, hold on, it's old tech, etc. Let's just stick to what we know. There's a bit of a, you know, a bridge gap. So it's interesting, Brian, right? Just hearing Robin say that as well. It is. And I kind of wonder too, Jace, there just seems to be a lot of convergence in the industry right now, right? I mean, certainly we all know, right, coming out of the COVID, there's been a fair amount of underinvestment, right? But the demand curve is going up. And I think there's a general recognition that there's going to be a shortage of supply. And I think most players in the industry are feeling pretty bullish about the tailwinds. 
Mm-hmm. But that also, I think, puts a lot of pressure on the service companies and on the producers to generate the results to the street that, you know, they're going to be able to capitalize on these tailwinds. And, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a lag for a lot of reasons, right? I mean, it's certainly, you know, just dropping new technology into a rig operating environment and hoping it doesn't create, you know, a safety event or Mm-hmm. it's sort of a high-risk scenario. You can't correct a line of code if it causes a death on a rig or something like that. So maybe it's a little bit of a lag, but I almost feel like there's a whiplash effect possibly starting to impact the industry because of all of these this convergence around market push for margin, supply constraints, having to get mm-hmm. more out of your assets to drive revenue up. So yeah, I mean, I agree, Jace. I think it's really an exciting time for our industry and maybe... Some of these technologies are starting to mature in a way that can really do something for their service companies and the operators. Yeah, and clearly the, the digitalization of the processes and just the access to more data and the visualization of what's going on down hole means there's a lot more facility for remote control and for remote operating centers, which enables the service companies, means that they're, for example, their directional Drillers can look after more than one well. It means that a drilling engineer and operator can look after more than one well at a time. So all that digitalization and is just enabling more and more efficiency, which is clearly a good thing. I was going to ask around some of the skills you're seeing. I mean, we are off talking about the workforce for tomorrow, right? So what are the skills that you're seeing change throughout the years in terms of what type of people are coming into the industry and how has that changed from when it first started to what you see as the ultimate skills that are needed now? Well, clearly there's a lot more technical skills required for programming. If you're going to have automated drilling, automated pipe handling, we need people who understand robotics, who understand the process. If I I look at my days in Dedegumba, they were dealing nearly exclusively with oil and gas contracts, and yet the majority of people within Dedegumba were, so let's say, development folks, and they didn't know a lot about the oil field, but they were certainly doing a lot to help the oil field. So those are sort of skills that we're going to need more and more of. And I think we're seeing that already. You know, we're seeing more and more of those sort of hiring types in all stakeholders, whether it's drilling contractors, service companies, and operators. So, and I'm sure that you guys, IBM, have seen, seen a lot of that. What about in some of the demographics? Are you seeing some of the different types of people? Are you seeing more females? Are you seeing more anything like that? Or is it at the moment it's still pretty male-dominated society around some of the deep operations that you work in? No, seeing a lot more women. If I say that to the both operators and contractors, that the diminution of the manual tasks means why aren't you hiring more women? And clearly the answer is we are. But clearly the industry has a challenge with regard to bringing people into oil and gas. We know that through the colleges that petroleum engineering students are not lining up around the corner like they used to. And I think there's a lot to be done there with regard to bringing people into the energy industry because there are a lot more skill sets required. And, for example, drilling is required for carbon sequestration, potentially for hydrogen storage, certainly for geothermal. So I think we can bring students into studying those sort of subjects, which will then be transferable if necessary to drilling elsewhere. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of connective tissue between the skill sets of uh, sort of, for lack of better terminology, that the energy market or the energy industry of of yesterday and today and where we're going tomorrow. And, you know, I think maybe a lot of young people don't realize out there that you still need geological skill set background for geothermal and, like you said, for hydrogen storage, etc. So, 
And I think it is behooves us all, right, as industry players to help evangelize that, help get young people excited that, you know, you can start, you know, traditional fossil fuel space and those skill sets are completely transferable to new energy sources and that, you know, our clients are investing in both, right, at the same time. Yeah, it's almost like we could do with maybe university course on the subsurface because the subsurface subjects, for example, the analysis of cores is traditionally used for the analysis of production, but also now for storage, you know, investigating what does the pore space look like for the potential for carbon sequestration, for example. So subsurface skills in general are universal across, if you like, many of the uh, energy sources. Yeah, no, it's really cool. I, I think we need to trick these students, right, and tell them they're majoring in <laughs> new energy. And then one day they wake up, take their blindfolds off, and they're out on a rig somewhere offshore, right? So, uh, yeah. <laughs> But that's where the problems will be solved, probably, right? It's yeah. not always going to be solved. It's not going to be solved by just stopping oil and gas because too many people would just be, would lose out across the world. We don't have the energy capacity to make up for it. And it would be the poorer nations that would lose out worse than most and exacerbating poverty. So how do we get people to understand that there is such a if you're going to fix this problem about the transition you've got to be in it Mm -hmm. to fix it and so evangelizing it for sure is the way forward and i'm glad to hear there is more people with uh, different demographics coming in because we need that because we need to start building more of the diversity plus bringing in some of the more of the they will help evangelize as well i think across a broader group trying to get more people in this industry to start fixing it don't know if you see the same robin yeah you also see with regard to demographics that the the sort of challenges that we see with the PR of oil and gas, for example, in North America and Europe, those challenges don't necessarily apply to the same degree in other parts of the world. If you're in the Middle East or in Africa, my impression is, and we certainly see this through membership of the SPE, it is that those you know, that some students are very keen to join uh, the energy industry. Robin, just as a young man, not saying that you're an old man now, but given your experience, let's talk about, that's probably the better way to see it, your time in Libya, Venezuela, how did you then, clearly the technology or digital wasn't there, how yeah. did you, or how did you manage some digital or some technology coming through to help you? How difficult was that as a, on the work that you were doing as a young man versus then growing into the experience you've had? Have you seen a huge difference? Clearly, a lot of it was still driven by data, even then. If you're sitting in a mudlogging unit, you're tracking, you've got sensors all over the rig. So yeah. not only are you looking at the geology, but you're tracking the progress of the drilling, you're tracking the performance of the drilling process. And so you're sitting there looking, you're watching the rig drill in front of you. So you very mm-hmm. quickly feel in, in tune with what's going on. And then if I move on to when I was selling drill bits, the only way you could sell, you know, when we were selling PDC drill bits back in the day when they were quite new and they were four and five times the price of a roller cone bit that you were competing with. Clearly, the only way you can justify that is with the value proposition. And the only way you can justify that yeah. is with the data. It's going to drill further. It's going to drill faster. Therefore, this is how much you're going to save compared with what you've been doing traditionally. So just like we're doing now, you know, the decisions are driven by the data. Now, of course, there's a lot more of it. Not only can we make decisions, we can now program machines to make decisions for us such as the sophistication of the data stream. But you can see where it's all come from. It's all driven by the data. I guess where I was going was, I'm assuming then if you can automate it and do it by machine, then you don't need to go to Libya, or maybe you don't need to be on, you need to be in a corporate center, which then 
I guess, where's the next Robin coming through the ranks now that over the next 15, 20 years has that experience and probably they don't have it, correct? I mean, do we still need the young one? I'm just going back to Neil's point of how do we get the people to have the experience that people like you, myself, Brian and Neil had of getting out there and actually doing it and touching it? Because a lot of it now is around corporate or around sort of automation so they don't have to go out to the rigs yeah. or the plants or the assets. And do you have to, once it's automated, apart from machinery breaking, do you need to be? Well, I mean, I think you can, if you take it to an extreme, and this would frighten a lot of drilling folks, but you can imagine one day there'll be a geologist with a joystick and that'll be it. And <laughs> That's right. There'll be visibility. Yeah, there'll be visibility through the sensors downhole as to where the drill bit is geologically. And therefore, the drill bit will also know where it is relative to where it should be. So the geologist will know which way to push the joystick. And that may be all you need. I mean, it's a bit like once you automate a railway system, for example, you don't need drivers and you don't actually need anybody until it goes wrong. And you can imagine taking drilling automation to an extreme that that could be the case could be the same cool tell you what i was doing a podcast with western colorado university the other day robin and a lot of them are doing it there's a big energy sort of uh, class there they've actually got their biggest class and their biggest female link sorry sign up and i just wonder the experience we'd be great given this type of experience going back to just rounding neil's point of really giving these guys what have we seen what's going on and you know showing the youngsters but, you know, the yeah. young professionals coming through of what the careers would be like and what to explore. What courses that they're signing up for with the large female companies? There's an energy, there's a specifically large energy services. So what they do is they put them through a four-year program. Yeah. And there's a 100% placement at the end of it. So they work with Chevron. I'm trying to think of the other, PDQ, et cetera. They'll literally guarantee the students a 100% placement in the energy sector or oil and gas sector. So it's fantastic. Imagine taking Neil Robbins' experience and putting that into some of their criteria. And I was asked to do something more Western, so I'd love to. Yeah, mate, Robin, I'll talk to you later about that one. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, and I think there's two ways we're going to capture your experience, I think, Robin, in my opinion. One is through passing it on directly to the students and the new people that are coming through. But the other way is to actually digitize it, right? Get some of your knowledge into some of the new tools and automations that will be built that will be easily then learned onto and so it'll be about some of learning it from always from just from the basics like you probably needed to, Robin, but allowing the guys to build on the existing knowledge that is now integrated already, automated in some of the systems. I don't think we're there yet for sure, but I see people trying. I don't know if you see something similar, Robin. Yeah, I, tell you, I just want to go back to the Colorado thing. I'd, I'd really like to know what they were doing to attract, you know, how they marketed what it is they're getting all these people to sign up for. Because as we were saying before, that uh, a lot of the colleges struggle to fill what would have been a traditional petroleum engineering places. But it sounds like the course they're offering is something that looks completely different, but no doubt includes a lot of petroleum engineering. So it would be good to talk to those. Yeah, there's a lot of petroleum engineering. They've taken a lot of communications with the oil and gas clients or the energy business. I think they've tried to call it energy so they don't sort of get tarred with go into it. They learn a, a wide range of experience. They get to things like NAEP, etc. There's a lot to do mm-hmm. with networking and understanding the industry. And as I say, it's 100% placement. So we should get on with Veronica and have a look at that because she's asked for us to be involved in some of the courses. Actually, we're going to give the students the podcast and actually okay. the podcast. So just give them a whole different view of dude, experience. They'll probably be better than us, Neil. I think it's the exposure and the training and then give 100% placement. 
Sorry, Neil, I jumped off track there. What was your question? My question was about how do we embed your knowledge experience, not only just in the new generation of people, but mm-hmm. also digitize it, automate it into them. Have you seen both angles being taken when people are trying to use your previous experience? I think so. If you think of some very specific examples, I mean, for example, some procedural examples where we definitely used to do things wrong and we didn't know we were doing them wrong until we started tracking the data. And then you realize, wow, this is just exactly the example I'm thinking of would be tagging bottom with a new drill bit. There was a time when you crank up the rotary speed and you squeak to bottom. I say squeak because at the time the brake would have been manual and it would squeak. And then you just touch bottom. It would squeak. <laughs> and you head off drilling. Now, all the squeaking, when I worked offshore, when I woke up in the morning, I could tell exactly what the rig was doing just by listening to it. So getting back to tagging bottom, when you start to look at the data from downhole, when you do that, you realize that you know with a PDC drill bit, that was exactly the wrong thing to do. You were actually shaking this thing to bits. And what you really need to do was go to bottom and give this thing its footprint before you actually cranked up a large amount of weight or rotary. And so those examples of, so if you like, experience where we were doing it wrong and and now we're doing it right, and the more data you get from downhole, the more of those things you're going to see. Because basically, when you're drilling in the dark, you don't know what you don't know. And that's why it annoys me when people are not investing in more data from downhole, because they don't know what they don't know, and it'd be amazed what they would discover when they started streaming data at a decent rate. I'm glad to hear that, actually, to be honest, Robin, because some of the frustrations I've maybe heard working with some of the oil and gas companies I'm working with is a lot of the time people are begin to start to learn from scratch sometimes. So they don't take the great model that happened in the previous wells and apply it. And then I think it's happening more and more, but there's still probably more work to be done in that space. What I'd also be interested in, especially in your role in SPE conferences, do you see this some of that learnings across companies? So using maybe like your SPE background or something where the ecosystem play, where the companies share some of their data, is that ever happening yet or it's very rare? What I found is there's a lot more sharing than there used to be. For example, there was a time when a service company would invest in a new technology alongside an operator and the operator would insist on retaining the IP. And then it became clear that a lot of operators realized, you know what, the IP for a downhole tool is really not our core competence. We don't really need that. So we will help this service company develop this tool and we will allow them to go sell this to all our competitors. The advantage to the first operator that had helped them develop it would be there'd be some commercial advantage over the first two or three years. There'd be some sort of financial incentive there. But what that meant was that it was clear to me that the operators at that time got the message, we need to, for the good of the industry, we need to help these service companies develop better technologies and they need to be able to apply it because it is their clear competency. And so over recent years, I have seen a lot more collaboration and sharing of technologies in those ways. Very good. I remember back in the day, actually, it was in Aberdeen years years ago where the Wood Report came out mm-hmm. and they were talking about the North Sea and trying to, and they, that was all about sharing and, and an ecosystem playing, sharing hardware and some of the, as well as some of the technology. So I'm glad to hear it is actually feeding a little bit more into some of the more, I don't think the industry will thrive unless it actually does do some more sharing and so forth as much as it could. Also, there's the sharing of data through a through clearinghouse system whereby everybody happens in the North Sea 
whereby everybody can see everybody's drilling performance. And therefore, that is sort of anonymized. So you can, you know, your own data and you know the general data for the province and you can see how you compare. I think that's healthy as well. It just means that people can see where they need to um, be putting in the effort to make the improvements. Cool. I've got certainly one last question anyway for me, and which is more around Robin. Well, to be honest, around Robin. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> boom, boom. Yeah, boom, boom, boom. You see, I told yeah, you I had a joke for every occasion. That was unintentional. I do apologise to everyone. Where was the funnest place you've been? Yeah, it was the best place. You've been all around the world, Robin. So what would you consider was your place that, you know, if I Libya, Venezuela, places I may never visit. Yeah. Uh, all around the world. So Great Yarmouth. I mean, <laughs> yeah, geez, right. just it's some of the exotic places you've been to, like Great Yarmouth, Banbury. They tend to be, you know, they were all good in different ways. I mean, the best part about being in Libya in a lot of ways was being able to drive out to the middle of the desert in the middle of the night and lay on your back when you got away from all the light pollution laying your back in the middle and just look oh, at the yeah. sky. I mean, that was just fantastic. a fantastic experience, you know. But I really enjoyed working in Latin America. I really enjoyed working with the people of Venezuela. And Colombia, I think, was one of my favorite countries. It's had a lot of bad press because of political issues mm. over the years. But again, that's a great country and great people, so... Fantastic. Just to neighbor it. Well, yeah. And then, of course, there's I'm Western Canada. Put some of these on my bucket list. Well, hold on. I thought he'd say Bankery, Neil. I thought he'd say Bankery <laughs> in Scotland. Dude, there's nowhere like that. Actually, on a day like today, as I love Scotland, actually. And as we said, the weather isn't always. I'm just looking out the window now and it's bright and sunny. And I'm, It's just a I'm Scottish people, course. Robin. That's the problem, That's isn't right. it? <laughs> <laughs> it's not right. Scotland. It's a Scottish people that they're the problem. That's right. Beautiful country. Shame about the people. (laughs) So, Robin, safe trip back to Houston. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Really, really interesting. When are you back? Yeah, thanks so much. September? Yeah, get back about, I think it's 10th or 11th, something like that, just after the end of the uh, offshore Europe. Perfect. So I'll see you soon. Nice one. Thank you, Robin. Thank Thank you, you, everyone. That's another one. If you want to be like the next Robin, please get Neil, Brian or I, drop us a note and we can get involved. I'll put Robin's details on the show notes and that's a wrap. Neil Robin, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much. Join us again next week on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. (laughs) 